back in to Hebrews 10, so uh, make sure you keep your Bibles open there as you've just read along, hopefully, uh, with Jenna this morning. We want to um, make sure that we're tracking as we keep going. So uh, we are into the last four chapters of Hebrews here, but we're going to be here for a bit still. Uh, smaller sections, Hebrews 10 kind of is the chapter that wraps up the conversation we're having in the last couple chapters about Christ's payment being the better priest, that Jesus was the better priest, he brought in the better priesthood, and there was a number of factors we've been talking about in there. So if you haven't been with us, I'll give us a quick recap before we jump into the text. But the main message of Hebrews, and one that we've been talking about constantly, is that Jesus is greater. He's greater than all that has gone before, he's greater than all that is currently here, and he's greater than anything you'll see going forward. That Jesus is greater no matter what we put on the other side of that equation, he has accomplished more, and he's accomplished it better than anyone else has. As we've been digging into that, Hebrews 10 kind of brings us to a place where we're looking specifically at Jesus' sacrifice taking away our sin. So in the last chapter in 10, we walked our way up through, <clears throat> or chapter 9, we walked our way up through this concentration on the blood of Christ. What does the blood of Christ accomplish that previous all the shedding of blood through the sacrifices could not perfectly accomplish? And how is that different in Christ's once-for-all perfect sacrifice? We've been establishing that, and the reason that we got to that point is in the first eight chapters, we walked through Jesus being greater than a number of different things, greater than the angels, which specifically helps us understand the angels were messengers of God. So Jesus... Be greater than the angels, he brings a superior word. So that's the first thing. So let me give you three here. Jesus brings a better word. The angels were the ones who brought the word of God to people consistently through the old covenant. But when Jesus shows up, John 1 tells us this. Jesus doesn't only bring a word, Jesus is the word. So Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father on our behalf is a better word than the Old Covenant. Jesus brings a better word. That's in Hebrews 1 and 2. <clears throat> Secondly, in chapters 3, 4, and 5, we look at Jesus bringing a better covenant. He brought a better promise, a better agreement between God and the people that he had created. That the Old Covenant, while good for certain things, was not sufficient for all things. So Jesus bringing the new covenant, new, <clears throat> newer than the Abrahamic covenant, newer than the Mosaic covenant, newer than all the agreements that God had put in place with his people previously, he brings the better agreement. One of the ways and the main way that this agreement, this covenant is better through Christ is that God keeps both sides of the agreement on our behalf instead of allowing us to try to keep one side. It's been proven throughout all of history that man is not capable of keeping the side of the agreement that would require us to keep in order for us to have relationship with God consistently. So Jesus comes in and he keeps that side of the covenant for us. So Jesus brings a better word, Jesus brings a better covenant, and Jesus brings a better priesthood. That's the first 10 chapters of Hebrews kind of in the, the 30,000 foot view. Now we've been in here for months. Right? So we know there's much more in there we've been digging through. But he brings a better priesthood 
because the old priesthood that was supposed to administer the old covenant had to repeatedly do the same things over and over and over. And today, what we're going to look at in the first 10 verses of Hebrews 10 is this. Part of Christ being the better priest and bringing the better priesthood and accomplishing the better covenant is the fact that His sacrifice takes away sin. And away is the main word there that we're going to focus on today. The old covenant and the sacrificial system that was continually put in place did not take away sin. It paid for past sin. So that day of atonement we've been talking about, when the nation of Israel got to that day every year, and the priest had to go through all that ceremonial uh, cleansing and then take the blood and with the hyssop into the temple and sprinkle it everywhere and have the blood cleanse the inside of the temple and then he would enter into the Holy of Holies. What he was doing on that day was making payment for the past sin of that year. But each atonement, each day, one day of atonement each year only paid for the sin of the past year, not the sin of the previous or the ongoing year. As soon as he walked out of there, while the past sins had been taken care of with God, people had to wait a whole nother year for their sins to be taken care of again. And after that year, they would have to wait again. And after that year, they would have to wait again. And on and on and on. Christ's sacrifice takes away sin. And this is a phrase that's repeated in Hebrews multiple times. Once for all. Can you repeat that with me? Christ's sin takes away, Christ's sacrifice takes away sin. How? Once for all. That's it. We're going to look at a word in the text today. The word is perfect. That is what sets Christ's sacrifice apart from all the others. And while you and I have not slaughtered a bull or a goat, or sacrificed a lamb, or a turtle dove, or anything else that was included in the Old Covenant, here's what we need to remember because of this truth. All of your personal sacrifices, the things that you need to either set aside or dedicate to the Lord, or stop doing or start doing, that He has called you to, all those sacrifices do not earn you the place with God that you need to have. Now, it doesn't mean you don't do them. One of the things that we see in the Old Covenant is this. The psalmist says in Psalm 40, which we're going to look at in a minute, that the writer of Hebrews quotes. He also says in Psalm 51, if you wanted more sacrifices of more bulls and goats, I'd do it. But that's not what you desire as he talks to God. What you desire is the sacrifice of my heart. See, the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is this. The old sacrificial system in the Old Covenant had to keep being repeated because it could only cleanse the outer of the person. The sin that had already been committed. Not going forward. The New Covenant in Christ, in His perfect sacrifice once for all, cleanses all past sin and all future sin. It puts you in a different standing with God than the Old Covenant could ever do. We talked about this continually. The Old Covenant was what of the New Covenant? It was a shadow. It was a leaning 
It was meant to show us that we couldn't earn our place with God. That we couldn't constantly sacrifice even enough to win the day, much less the year, much less your whole life. You can't work your way into God's favor, and the law showed us that. The new covenant sets us free from trying. It doesn't mean you don't work, right? If you, if you have to kind of process this through in your spiritual maturity in life, this relationship between faith and works, I'm going to direct you to the book of James. Okay? Shorter little book. But it is the place where Scripture really kind of digs in and God gives you this relationship between faith and works. And the difference between the old covenant and faith and works in relationship there and the new covenant under Christ and faith and works relationship under Him. They still work together, just so you know. But in the old covenant, the only analogy I could get as I kept studying for this was, the old covenant was the cart before the horse. Okay? It was people working their way into right relationship with God. But never being able to get there and sustain it. Cart before the horse. Works had to kind of proceed a little bit in your relationship in the covenant. But the old covenant, the law, kept showing us and showing the nation of Israel and the people that are reading this for the first time from the writer of Hebrews, it wasn't working. There were particular things that it set you free from, but it was temporary and had to be repeated and had to keep going back to that well. The new covenant, there is still a relationship under Christ between faith and works. But in the new covenant, you don't work to gain God's favor. You work because you have God's favor. That's the difference. Anybody here ever feel like, no matter how hard they strive, no matter how many things they do, you just can't get ahead? Have you ever felt that feeling? I mean, be honest. It is so difficult to live under the weight of earning, right? It's hard. It feels like a never-ending cycle. Like you're, the, the analogy I always feel like is like you're on one of those little wheels, like a hamster, right? You're running, and you're going nowhere. It's why I hate running on a treadmill, okay? You get on a treadmill, you're working hard, but you have not gone anywhere, no matter how long you stay on it. That is the idea of working yourself into God's favor. You can keep trying, but you can't get there on your but faith and works still have a relationship in the life of the believer in the new covenant. Because of Christ's payment, which we will dig into today, taking away your sin once for all, your faith in that translates into your works for Him. Faith precedes works. But how do we know that you have faith? That's the question in James. So you can dig in there It's for another time. But James tells us the only way that I know you have faith is by your works. Otherwise, I have no idea that you have faith. If you tell me you believe in God and your life doesn't look any different because of it, I have no clue that your faith is real. 
But because of your works, I can know your faith and your right standing with Jesus. This is the relationship in the new covenant. This is why the sacrifice of Christ is the perfect sacrifice, not the ongoing and ongoingly needed sacrifice of the old covenant. Christ's sacrifice is once for all. And just because those are the last three words in verse 10 doesn't mean we're done. Okay? We're going to work our way backward through this because of that truth. But what I wanted to give us as an introduction is this. Never get over the sufficiency of Christ's payment for you. Never get over that. If you get over that in your personal life, in your spiritual life, I will be scared. I'll be afraid for you in your spiritual development and maturity. It is a truth. With thousands of years of manhood and womanhood and fighting sin could not accomplish, Christ accomplished in one act at the cross. Thousands of years. And Christ perfects in one act. His sacrificial gift towards us. Don't get over that. There's nothing better than that. Satan would want nothing more than for you to minimize Christ's sacrifice taking away all of your sin. If that is not a heart-rendering, life-changing truth, then the evil one is going to be really content with your life if you can't see that it's changing everything. It changes everything. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 4 first. As we dig into Hebrews 10 here. He continues on from right from out of chapter 9. You've got to remember this as you're reading Scripture. Chapter breaks were not originally inspired. <laughs> they were added in a little bit later so that we can make sense of finding things in God's Word, okay? So, chapter 10 is not a new thought pattern or a new introduction. It's just simply the writer carrying on from, from what we know as chapter 9. He continues right in. The end of chapter 9 being what? The encouragement of those who are eagerly waiting for Him that we will one day see the second coming of Christ. So that's the end of chapter 9. Chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. <clears throat> could it make right those who draw near in that moment? Yes, it could. That, that's what the Day of Atonement was for the nation of Israel. It was making them right in that moment for all the mess of their last year. But it didn't make them perfect. It made them momentarily right with God. The difference that Christ brings into our life is that we are told all throughout Scripture that His power is made perfect in His work in us. That while we are not humanly perfect, Christ's perfection gets passed on to us. Think about that for just a minute. Because, one, when you think about what we just talked about earlier, 
feeling like you're on this little bit of a hamster wheel of trying to do the right things but not getting very far with it. We live in the reality now of an eternal truth and an earthly existence. That's what we're torn between. As followers of Christ and those who have been made new in Him, those who have had our sins taken away through Christ's sacrifice, we should feel the angst of still being here. When you find yourself asking the question, man, I wish I could just get out of here. Wish I could get to heaven. I'm guaranteeing you it will be better. When you find yourself processing that through or pushing up against that in your daily struggles, that is the reality, the little short-term reality of our earthly lives. But it is not the eternal reality. The eternal reality is this. Christ has already made you perfect in himself. That while we are still in this in-between, the eternal is secure. Last week we talked about a particular a particular hymn that we sang last week, and I want to remind us of is this. Blessed assurance. Right? Blessed assurance. You have eternity secured for you in Jesus. That should give you rest in your soul. Should give you peace, even though this world is full of struggle. Your eternity is secured in Christ. And you have the blessed assurance of knowing that while the shadow of things proceeds, the true reality of things in verse 1 has already been secured. It's already been won. It's already a reality in heaven. Why? Because where is Jesus? The right hand of the Father. Standing in our behalf. Interceding before us. And in the day of judgment, when we go to heaven as well, we do not stand in front of God the Father by ourselves. We will stand there and give an account, but Christ will be in front of us. And everything that we have done, Christ will be able to stand and say, that's paid for. That's paid for. They're good. Their faith has made them well. Your eternal security has been bought with Christ's blood and has been secured forever. In verse 1, there's a word at the end that says to make perfect those who draw near. The old covenant was incapable of making perfect. This word perfect, they're a little digging on this. <clears throat> the word perfect or its Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament is used 51 times in all 66 books, okay? So this idea of being perfect is mentioned 51 times in 66 books. That's not a lot, right? I mean, that's less than once a book in your Bible. In the book of Hebrews, this term perfect is used 12 of those times. 12 times out of 51 in all of Scripture. Twelve times in Hebrews. What does that tell us? It tells us that this word that God's given us in this particular section of Scripture is about the reality of Christ 
being perfect and making perfect. When I actually pulled those numbers, I was looking at those, I said, oh my word, that is a huge percentage in one letter out of 66. Huge percentage. And as I prayed about what God was trying to show us in that, I'm convinced it's this. Because we still struggle with sin, because we still struggle with the effects of sin around us and in us, sometimes we're going to forget that Christ has made you perfect in himself. And this study in Hebrews is one to continually show us you are not what the world says you are. You are in Christ who God says you are. He says you've been made perfect in Him. Spiritually, this is the concept of sanctification, right? To be made complete. To be made right in Christ. It's this idea of sanctification. And the interesting word here Sanctification in Scripture, especially in the Greek, is this. It is a present ongoing verb. Okay? So it's not like our tenses. We have three tenses. We've talked about this before, right? We mentioned this. English language has three tenses. Past, present, future. Okay? The Greek has more. And one of them is this. Present and future. Your sanctification is one thing that you will continually be learning as you grow in Christ as you mature in Him, that while for eternity you've made, made, been made perfect through Christ and will exist in eternity that way, in the present, you're still made right for, with Him eternally and you're being made right, being made perfect in this life. So you are both being sanctified and already sanctified. Make sense? Kind of. It's one of those truths that you have to stop and say, I'm going to trust God that that's true. Because he tells me it's true. He sent his son to make it true. So I can believe it's true, even though there's part of my mind that still struggles with this reality. I am right with God forever. Now and in the future. But I am also being made perfect by God refining me every day to hate sin more and love God more. So the process of sanctification is a reality for the life of the believer here. But the eternal sanctification is also an equal reality for the life of the believer forever. It's a tough concept to wrap your head around. Why? Because we want things to be linear of time and space and this before that, and that after this, and all those types of things. And that's not how God, in His infinite wisdom, sees all of eternity and time. He exists before time, and He exists after time. And in the middle, He sees all of it at once. That will melt your mind if you keep thinking about it long enough. Okay? It's one of those God concepts that we cannot fully gather. <clears throat> this concept in verse 1 that says the old covenant could not make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, in verse 2, they would have not ceased, to, they would have, 
Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin, right? The difference between the old payment of sin and the new payment of sin through Christ is that in the old covenant, you did your work, you did the cleansing part, you made the sacrifices that needed to be made, and the priest would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement for you, but your sin was still there. Even though you had done what you'd been commanded to do, your sin was paid for, but not forgotten. And this is the difference with Christ. The new covenant is this. In Christ's payment, your sin is paid for and gone. Totally gone. Gone forever, not to be remembered. That's one of the differences here. Verse 2 says, hey, they would have stopped giving sacrifices in the Old Testament if your sin was totally wiped from your consciousness. If it was not to be remembered anymore and it was gone, then there would have been no need to go back and do that again. The next week with your minor sacrifices and the next day of atonement with your major sacrifices through the high priest. There would have been no need to keep doing that over and over and over. But the reality was also this. There was a need to keep doing that over and over and over because the sacrifice was not perfect. It was good and it was right, but it was not perfect. And that's where Jesus gives you a new look into the covenant and the sacrifice. He made a sacrifice that was good and right, like the old covenant, but also perfect. God always does what is good, right, and perfect. Sometimes, occasionally, we, as followers of Jesus, do things that are good and right. That's the old covenant, right? You'll have a day where you do something that's good and right. You'll make the right sacrifice. You'll do what God's told you to do. And then in the next breath, you won't. So the old covenant was capable of getting good and right down, right? Good and right. Do what's good, which is follow Christ's command. Do what he's called you to do. And do what's right, which is make sacrifices when you don't. Good and right, the old covenant had. Perfect, it did not have. But in Christ, you and I are set free from the weight of perfection. And that was the weight that everybody who lived under the law had. They were doing at times what was good and right. But they were still under the weight of perfection not being there. Christ comes in, does what is good and right, sacrifice, remission of, of sins by the shedding of blood. He does what's good and right, just like the old covenant. But he does it perfectly. Once for all. Doesn't have to be repeated. Doesn't have to be gone back to. Perfect in verse 1. Otherwise, verse 2 is that question. If the old covenant was perfect, you wouldn't have had to keep doing it. But you had to keep doing it. Because it wasn't perfect. It was good and it was right. Because God told you to do it. And for the most part, Israel at times, right? We know they got a checkered past. But at times they did it well and did it right but it was not perfect. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, the 
the ones of the Old Covenant, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Wait a minute. I thought all those sacrifices were taking away sins. Wasn't that the whole point? No. Those sacrifices were paying for the sins you already did. They weren't taking away your ability to get out from under sin going forward. Because you were going to have to come back and pay for the sins of tomorrow again. Those sacrifices in the Old Covenant were paying for the past sins. But they didn't actually take away sin. This is another one of those key words. So hopefully you underlined perfect earlier in verse 1. Underline, underline away in verse 4. His sacrifice is perfect and it not only pays for sin, but it takes it away. The process of sanctification in this world for the life of the believer is this. Constantly learning to live in our eternal reality. Constantly living, learning to live in our eternal reality. You and I were not made for this world. We were made for eternity. Oftentimes, there's this comment that gets made about God's kingdom, and we talked about this in our last sermon series last year, that God's kingdom, and that God's kingdom is the upside-down kingdom. No, it's not. God's kingdom is the right-side-out kingdom. We're living currently in the upside-down kingdom. This is the way that things were not meant to be. For eternity will exist in the way things were meant to be. No more weight of sin. No more constant work to pay for things that you've done. And our, wor our world now, sanctification is the process of learning to live in our eternal reality. Live today, right now, free from the weight of sin. Not free from the presence of sin, because we're not in heaven yet, but free from the weight of it. Free from the power of it in your life. That's how Christ's payment changed the covenant. The new covenant is it is possible for us to be away from sin. And here's part of the thing, the challenge I want to give you about sanctification. If you don't hate sin more and love God more as you grow and walk in this world, you're not actively engaging in your sanctification. The life of the believer is one that is characterized in Scripture by this difference in chapter in verses 1 through 4. The Old Covenant could not make them perfect. Christ makes you perfect. Eternally. The Old Covenant could not take away sin. They make a payment for sin, all the stuff they did over the last year, but they're still living under the weight of it, walking right out of there. Still under the weight. Still had to carry the ball. The New Covenant makes payment for sin, and takes the weight off. No longer do we need to make things right with God because Jesus already did. Think about the freedom that should give to your soul 
the amount of gratefulness and gratitude and thanksgiving that should flow out of us. Because we don't have to wake up every day trying to figure out how to take care of our sin. It also should free you in this reality here for eternity. If you're a follower of Christ, you don't have to constantly be thinking about your sin. Why? God never commands you to remember it. What is it that we are commanded to remember in Scripture? Anybody? I'll give you a hint. 1 Corinthians 11. Communion. What is, what is the Lord's Supper says in Scripture meant to remind us of? Christ. The only thing we're called to remember as followers of Christ is Jesus' death for us in his resurrection. We're not called to remember our sin. Don't keep going back to that. That's old covenant thinking. That's the blood of bulls and goats thinking. God says, no, you have Christ. A new thinking. We're never called to remember our sin apart from confessing it. But once we do, it's gone. Don't keep going back. His payment and his whisking away, taking away of sin is perfect. So don't act like it's not. The only thing we're told to remember is Christ. Remember him. Remember his payment. Remember your freedom because of it. Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings have not been desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings and offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. While the sacrifices of the old covenant were required by God for the people to maintain living in this world with him, they were not God's ultimate desire. What was God's ultimate desire? We went back before Genesis 3. What's God's ultimate desire? What's that? Absolutely. We'll touch on this. Relationship with him. God's ultimate desire in the creation of men and women is this. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to dwell with us. And while the tabernacle, when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, and the temple in Jerusalem, when they had settled into the promised land, were mere shadows of Christ dwelling with his people, they were only shadows. And the sacrifices were all that had to happen in order for God to just be there in that place. God's intention and desire has always been that he would freely dwell in our midst without sin. That's God's intention. That's his heart. That's his desire. The psalmist knew this. 
David says it in his, the great psalm of confession in Psalm 51. David just did the worst thing he'd ever done in his life. He also paid the worst price he had ever had to pay up to then in his life. And he was decimated by the sin in his life. And he cries out to God to forgive him, to restore the joy of his salvation. And he was the king. He had access to all the bulls and goats, right? And he says there to God, if you desired more sacrifices, I'd kill them all. I'd kill them all. I'd shed all the blood I could find of bulls and goats. But it won't change what I've done with you. The psalmist says, or David says, cries out to God, I know that you want my heart. And, and in that phrase, it's not just your beating heart in your chest. It's you want all of me. Not just my outward ritualistic cleansing that we have to do in order to continue to be the people of God in the Old Covenant. But the psalmist says, I know you want more than that. You actually want me to love you more than anything else. This is what God's desire is for us. It's not to say that sacrifices weren't required. Right? So in verse 5 it says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. That's a quote from Psalm 40. Verses 6-8 through eight is this, this quote here. Psalm 40 is giving that to us. And it's again in Psalm 51. It's again in 1 Samuel 15.22. You can write that one down. It's also in Isaiah 1.11. Okay, this is a commonly known belief, both in Psalm 51 and Isaiah 15 and Isaiah chapter 1, or 1 Samuel 15, Isaiah chapter 1. And here the quote that the Hebrews, writer of Hebrews uses from Psalm 40, it is a commonly known reality that God's desire is not for a bunch of bulls and goats to die on your behalf. God's desire was the situation that existed in the Garden of Eden before sin that Adam and Eve walked freely with their God and talked with Him and listened to Him and did everything He asked them to. That's God's desire. Now until what existed in Genesis 1 and 2 is rectified with Christ's second coming and everyone who believes being in eternity in heaven with Him, all that gap in the middle Sin exists and has to be taken care of. The old covenant, Christ gave them, or God gave them a way to take care of it. But with Christ, the new covenant takes care of it perfectly and once for all. That's why these terms are so important. Perfect, taken away, and once for all in this section. Verse 9. At the end, he says he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Underline this particular, particular portion here in verse 10. We have been sanctified. Okay? What tense is that in? Past. Right? Past. We have been sanctified. Do you feel sanctified? 
feel perfect? That's why feelings shouldn't run your life. It doesn't matter how you feel. How you feel about what Christ has done for you does not equal reality. Because there will be days when you feel like you've been sanctified in Christ, right? Hopefully you've had some of those and you walk with him. Where you just feel like, I feel closer to God right now than I ever have. But you will also have days where you do not feel there. And you're asking yourself, I don't think I've gotten this at all. I'm a mess. God doesn't want you to live under that as thinking it's reality. Because we have been sanctified. You have been made perfect, righteous, in God's eyes. Through Jesus. The only act that was required of you was faith. Not all you're trying to keep up in the meantime. There is a difference when the believer gathers this reality in their life and starts to live under it. And that is the challenge that I have for you today. And for me. To consistently be looking at this truth and saying, I've been sanctified. Someone who's been sanctified, there's a term for that. Anybody know? You were a sinner, you're sanctified, and now you're what? A saint. And not the saint that you might think of when I say that because you did a few things here on this earth or performed a miracle, right? Not that. A biblical saint that has been made perfect for eternity because of Christ. If you have faith in Christ, he's given you a new life. Not the old one, right? That lives under the weight of sin. That's constantly struggling to get out from under it. Not the old life. The new life is one of a saint. A royal priesthood, Scripture tells us. You and I, if we have followed Christ in faith, but made new in him, we're saints. Now, I don't know if we should start walking around calling each other that in public. It may seem a little odd, but you know what? Here, when we're together, I have no problem with it. Because that's who we are. Now, we're in life together. We know each other's messes, right? We know what's going on and what's not going really great. And which part we actually feel like, I didn't feel like a saint yesterday. Or maybe I didn't feel like a saint this morning. If you have little kids, getting to church on Sunday morning doesn't feel like sainthood. Okay? But that's okay. Because how you feel about what reality is doesn't change reality. You, if you have followed Christ in faith, are made new in him, secured for eternity, that will never change, and you are a saint. Redeemed through Christ. Live with that as a reality. Remind yourself of that as you go. Remind each other of that as you go. As brothers and sisters in Christ, as husbands and wives in different homes, as parents, as fellow workers that are in this world trying to bring forth the kingdom and bring other people into sainthood in Christ, you're going to need 
to be reminded. And you're also going to need to remind some other folks. So remind them. You see somebody struggling with sin? Somebody who can't get out from under the weight? Failing to remember that Christ has taken that weight away? Remind them who they are. Remind them. That's the best way. Don't do this. This is anti-gospel. Somebody struggling with sin, don't give them a checklist. Things to do. Don't do that. Give them truth. Give them eternal truth. Doesn't mean you don't have things to do after that. But checklists are not reality for someone who's walking in Christ. That's living under the weight of sin and trying to make things right yourself, right? Instead, remind each other of our rightful standing for eternity, free from sin, as saints in Christ's kingdom. And then, in the freedom of that, work out your salvation. Work out your sanctification in the everyday. But don't go about trying to work out your sanctification in order to get right with God. You will not win that battle. Because the reality is, when you remember who you are in Christ and what Christ has done for you, you've already won that battle. Live like you already won. Live out of your victory. Don't try to work towards it. Christ already secured it. This is the reality of these ten verses here in Hebrews chapter 10. These key terms, that he makes perfect those who draw near, that he takes away sin, not just takes care of it until the next year when he got to take care of it again, he actually takes it away. And that we have been sanctified. How many times? Once for all. This is freedom, folks. But we've got to keep reminding ourselves of it. Or we will go back to living under the burden of trying to do it ourselves. Remind each other of the freedom that comes through Christ's once for all payment. Perfect, taking away sins, and sanctifying us for eternity. Brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of the King, sanctified once for all. As we transition in the next part of our gathering, I want to drive this point home to us. Whether you came from a different church or a different practice, different historical walk in Christianity, here we observe communion every time we're together on Sunday. Well, except for one. Easter because we do it on Good Friday. But that should be the norm for us as believers. Why? Because Jesus says, remember my payment for you. Don't remember your hard work. Don't remember just your sin. Remember that I took it all away once for all. So weekly, when we come to the Lord's table or communion, we observe the Eucharist together. When you come forward, there's always two people up here, two covenant members of this church that have already given their lives to Christ and committed to remind each other and, them, and you of those truths. When you come up, you'll hear two phrases when you come. Be a reminder 
when you take, that's Christ's body broken for you. And then when you dip, that is a remembrance of Christ's blood shed for you. And when you walk away from the front here, after receiving communion together, you should be thinking of the freedom that Christ has secured for you for eternity. His body broken. You don't have to break yours trying to get there. His blood spilled. You don't have to spill any more blood for your sin. Because his was perfect once for all. I'd encourage you to think about that today. The reality, the eternal reality of our present circumstances. As we sing, as we give in a minute, as we come to receive communion together, those who are followers of Him should be reminded His sacrifice is complete, it's perfect, it's once for all. We don't have to carry the weight. We already took it away.